I want to start by actually sharing another sports story, also from the city of Chicago, ironically. I didn't intend to do it that way, but this is just kind of how it worked out. But I want to begin by talking about the 2016 Chicago Cubs. Because in 2016, the Chicago Cubs broke the longest championship drought in Major League history by winning the World Series after a, a wait of 108 years. Ironically, when they won the World Series that year, yeah, Chicago fan, uh, when they won the World Series that year, they broke the curse of the goat, which seems fitting for this series. But as great of a year as it was for the Cubs, it was not without stress, pressure, nerve-wracking moments, and a whole lot of worries for their manager, Joe Madden. Just one year before that, in 2015, the Cubs hired Joe Madden to manage the team, and the team got hot the second half of the 2015 season playing really well. So going into the 2016 season with a roster of young talent, the Chicago Cubs were the odds-on favorite to win the 2016 World Series. But any sports fan knows that just because you're the favorite to win, just because you're supposed to win, that does not mean you're going to win. You actually have to go out and play the game where anything can happen. And so you can imagine what this was like for Joe Madden, managing in a city starved for a championship. Everybody's got the curse of the goat in the back of their minds. Expectations are sky high. Everybody thinks you should be able to win. And you can imagine the amount of pressure that he was under. And he, rightfully so, had a lot to worry about. Players can get hurt. Other teams can get hot at the end of the season as you enter the postseason. And management could trade away key position players or key relief pitchers for draft picks down the road. Players get sick and have to miss games. Players have family emergencies come up that they have to leave the team to deal with. So anything is possible, and Joe Madden knew that. Well, the team played great that year, eventually reaching the World Series, where they faced off against another one of those great Ohio teams, the Cleveland Indians. In the World Series, the Indians quickly took a three games to one advantage, which is an almost insurmountable thing to overcome. Needless to say, the worry and pressure on Joe Madden was tremendous. And yet, despite it, he was able to keep his cool. In every game, he would fill out his team's lineup sheet, and at the top of it, he would curiously scribble some letters that he would look at all game long. The letters were D-N-L-P-E-P. In the end, the Cubs overcame the three games to one deficit to win the World Series. And in the aftermath, a reporter looking at the lineup sheet asked Joe Madden what the letters stood for. He responded, do not let pressure exceed pleasure. It was a reminder to himself that what he was doing should be fun. He was getting to live out his dreams, coaching his team in the World Series, being watched by millions of people and being paid millions of dollars every year to do it. Was there pressure to win? Yeah, of course. But that pressure should not overtake the, the privilege that he was experiencing. It, it would be a shame if that pressure robbed him of the pleasure he had in living out his dreams. I loved that story so much when I read it that I quickly went home and on the bathroom mirror I, in dry erase marker, I wrote the letters out, D-N-L-P-E-P, -E so that I would look at them every day. This was a point in time when we were beginning the process of, of looking to open up more space. We were beginning the deep and wide process here at Heartland. Now, I'll be the very first to admit that I was not under the type of pressure that Joe Madden was under by any stretch of the imagination, but I was leading a growing church, trying to manage a growing staff, trying to address our space constraints and figure out the right path forward. 
I was trying to juggle the relationships between our staff and our elders and our bankers, our architect, the construction company that we had chosen, and trying to raise close to $5 million, none of which I had ever done before. I was also trying to teach more on the weekends here, trying to be a good husband to my wife, a good father to my three little kids, a good friend to my friends, and still have some time left to figure out how I can do the things that I need to do to stay relatively healthy myself. Occasionally, people who I would talk to would say, you know, as a pastor, what do you do all week? Implying that I must only have to work on the weekends. And a little part of me wanted to just sucker punch them in the kidneys as they walked away. You know, just a little bit of me. I was worried about the things that, that could go wrong, all of the potential things that could come up and what we would do if this happened or if that happened. And so each day I would look at these letters on my bathroom mirror and I would remind myself not to let the pressure exceed the pleasure of what I was part of. I think it's a safe assumption to make that Joe Madden and I are probably not the only two people with things to worry about. My guess is that many of you come into church this morning carrying a load of worries with you. And if that's, if that's the case for you, I have good news. Before we leave, I'm going to invite you to hand those worries over to God and to receive the peace that he offers in exchange. I think it's a safe guess to make that many of you are carrying loads of worry as well because according to the National Institute for Mental Health, the level of worry in America is now at an epic level. I want to share some research with you. In any given year, nearly 50 million Americans will suffer a panic attack. 50 million Americans every single year. Anxiety disorders in America are the number one biggest mental health problem among women and the number two largest mental health problem among men after alcohol abuse. Statistically, the United States is the most anxious nation in the world by far, and our worries are costing Americans over $500 billion every year in medical bills and lost productivity. You have to ask yourself, why is this? Our cars are safer and more reliable than cars have ever been. Our homes are bigger and more comfortable than any other place on the planet. We regulate and we inspect food uh, production facilities and farms more than ever before to make sure the food that we're eating is the cleanest possible. We're drinking the cleanest water imaginable. All of this is happening without us having to give it any second thought. Yet if worry were an Olympic event, we as Americans would win the gold every single year. Citizens in other countries enjoy far more peace and tranquility. We know, in fact, that they experience one-fifth the anxiety levels of Americans, despite having fewer of life's necessities and fewer of the creature comforts that you and I think we can't live without. Interestingly, when people from those other countries immigrate to America, they end up being just as worried as natural-born Americans, so clearly there is something about our way of life that is taking our calm and making us more worried. And our children are feeling it as well. In a study recently done that involved more than 200,000 incoming freshmen, teenagers reported all-time lows in overall mental health and emotional stability. And psychologist Robert Leahy writes, check this out, that the average child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Kids today in America have more toys, 
more clothes, more vacations, and more opportunity than anybody that has ever walked the planet. But by the time they leave our homes, they are, are wrapped tighter than a baby in a onesie. Anybody with a baby, you know what I'm talking about, right? These onesies are so incredibly tight. I nev- could not understand why they did that. So actually, one day, side note, I mean, I, for what it's worth, I asked my pediatrician, just in case you're wondering, like, why are they so tight? The pediatrician told me it helps the baby stay flame retarded. I was, looked at him like, what? Are you serious? He was serious. I was like, we are in trouble if my baby is catching on fire and I'm relying on the onesie being tight as like what's going to save them. This does not seem like a good plan. There should be something else, something here. But we are a worried people. Right? We make our babies onesies tight, we're so worried, right? What if, what if my child catches on fire? Those are just the overarching statistics, too. I'm not even talking about the individual worries and stresses that we all carry. Most likely, you or someone you love and care about is dealing with a job loss or a foreclosure or battling cancer or struggling through a divorce or battling addiction. Or maybe you just have a job that you get up and go to every single day, which puts more pressure and and stress and worry on your shoulders. I serve as a chaplain for the Sun Prairie Police, Fire, and EMS departments. And as I have gotten to know our first responders and have started spending more and more time with them, I am amazed at the level of burden that they carry on our behalf every single day just because of the occupation they have chosen to enter into. We all owe them a debt of gratitude. And without exception, we are all getting older. And getting older brings with it its own challenges and frustrations as well. Somebody told me recently about an app that scans your face and it guesses how old you are based on what it sees. I ignorantly downloaded the app to try it out and I did not like what it guessed my age was. So, no kidding, I erased it, and I downloaded a second one that does the same thing, and its results were even worse. So I downloaded a third app that does it, and its results were even worse. I finally quit, and I just erased them all, and I thought, if I download another one, it's just going to pronounce me dead. It's like, (laughs) this is a dead body you're showing me here. So, that was me. But what is it for you? What are the worries that you're carrying today? What are the anxieties that you're carrying, that you're feeling? What are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things that that stress you out, that cause you to feel the pit in your stomach when you think about them? If you have any of those things, I have more good news for you. Jesus addresses this topic in the Sermon on the Mount. I want us to camp out today in a passage that we read in Matthew chapter 6. So if you brought a Bible, you can go ahead and open there. We're going to begin in verse 25, and we're going to see what Jesus has to say about worry. He begins by simply summing it up by saying, Do not worry about your life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And, and why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? 
So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. My guess is that many of you, maybe most of you, maybe even all of you, even if you haven't grown up going to church, my guess would be that most of you are familiar with this passage where Jesus simply says, hey, don't worry. This would fall into the category of things that are easier said than done, right? I mean, Jesus can sum it up in three words, do not worry, but this is a much more complicated topic, much more complex topic for those of us who deal with worry and stress. So is this passage an oversimplification of a topic by Jesus? No, I don't think so. I think that there are several things going on in this passage. I think Jesus is doing several things that most of us who are familiar with this passage tend to miss. It's part of what makes Jesus the goat. It's part of what makes Jesus the greatest teacher of all time, that he could address a complicated topic with an appropriately sized and nuanced answer, but make it simple and memorable. In this passage, you'll notice that Jesus is actually doing three things. Number one is he is asking some great questions. Number two is he gives us some commands to follow. And the third thing he does is he offers us an alternative to worrying. So I want us to look at these together. Maybe the first thing that stands out to you or as you read through this passage, maybe the thing that kind of jumps off the page or what you remember the most is how Jesus talks about a lot about birds and flowers, right? Right after saying, don't worry about your life, he goes into this thing where he says, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than, than, aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Jesus tells us to consider the birds. When you do that, when you sit and watch the birds, you notice how happy they seem, right? Just going through life, flying around, whistling joyfully, Right? Anybody ever hear a bird whistle a sad tune? How many times have you heard a bird outside your window go, <laughs> right? No, it doesn't happen. I mean, that would be really funny if you had like an Eeyore bird outside your house that's just always whistling a really depressed tune. But that doesn't happen because birds are, they're not grumpy. They're not irritable. They're not carrying around a lot of stress with them. They're just flying through life, singing about it. And then Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. Look how beautiful they are. They're not worried or thinking about their, what they're wearing. They're not thinking about what they look like, and yet they're incredibly beautiful. Now, I couldn't tell you a lily from a tulip or from anything else, but I understand Jesus' point. The flowers are beautiful, right? And they're not worried about it. They're not stressed about their existence. And in the, all of this talk about the birds and the flowers and how God cares for them, Jesus asked in a remarkably deep theological question, one that I wonder if you've ever considered. Jesus asked the question then, aren't you far more valuable to God than they are? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever stopped to compare and to think about how valuable you are to God in relation to how valuable the birds and flowers and other things in creation are to him? Because Jesus said, you are are far more valuable to him than those things are. 
Let this truth sink in this moment, this morning for a moment. There is nothing more valuable to God than you. Again, let that sink in. There is nothing more valuable to God than you. The mountains that he created, as majestic as they are, they are not as valuable to God as you are to God. The oceans that span the globe are not as valuable to God as you are. The fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the animals that populate this planet, they are not as valuable to God as you are. God created you in his image. That was given to you. Nothing else bears the image of God. You and you alone were made to carry and reflect the glory of God. God has made you promises. He has promised that he will always be there for you. He has promised that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. He has promised that when you pray, he hears your prayers and he has promised you that he will answer your prayers. He did not make those promises to anything else because you are valuable to him. God sent his son to be with you. Literally, Emmanuel, God with us us. That's how valuable we are to him. You are so valuable to him that Christ laid down his life to bridge the gap between you and God the Father. Jesus did not die for the birds and the flowers. He died for you because that's how valuable you are to him. And so if you are that valuable to the God of the universe, the God who who is sovereign and supreme, the God who sits on his throne ruling the heavens and the earth, the God who holds the whole universe in the palm of his hand, and he is in complete and total control. If that's how valuable you are to that God, do you really think you need to worry about your life? No, that's not a rhetorical question. I thought maybe someone would say no, no. Listen, I understand that there are probably things in this life that you don't have, but you wish you did. But never forget that what you have in Christ is far more than anything you do not have in life. I'm going to say that again because somebody should be writing this down to meditate on that statement this week. What you have in Christ is far more than anything you do not have in this life. You have been given everything you need to fulfill God's plans and purposes for your life today. And if you need something else to do what he wants you to do down the road, he will give you that then. But you do not need to worry about it. You do not need to worry that you won't have enough. You don't need to worry that he's going to leave you high and dry. You don't need to worry that he's going to forget about you. You don't need to worry because God knows what you need. And if you're as valuable to him as Jesus said you are, he's going to take care of you. And so Jesus, after asking this incredibly deep question, do you understand how valuable you are to God? He then follows it up by saying, so don't worry about these things don't worry about these things saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers but your father already knows all your needs it's an interesting observation that jesus makes here that these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers it's brilliant 
Because what Jesus is doing as he brings our thoughts into the conversation is he is addressing the fact that at its core, worry is all about the thoughts we think. Right? Worry is not something we eat. Right? Nobody eats a worry sandwich and then they're just worried. That's not how it works, right? Worry is not someplace you go. Worry is not something you physically choose to do. It is a mental thing. Everything that we experience in this life runs through one filter, and that filter is our minds. Our life really is the manifestation of the thoughts that we think, and so learning to control our thoughts is a big part of what God calls his followers to do. We're told, for example, in 2 Corinthians that we are to take every thought captive. The reason that he wants us to do that is because if we don't, then we simply go through our days driven by emotion and reaction. But by taking our thoughts captive and by being aware of the thoughts that are running through our minds, we're able to create space which allows us to choose how we want to respond to a situation rather than simply reacting impulsively. And so we, as followers of Christ who have placed our faith in him, we want to get really good at thinking about what we are thinking about. We want to get good at being aware of the thoughts that are running through our minds. Because as we take those thoughts captive, we can then judge them. We can evaluate our thoughts and we can ask ourselves, are these thoughts productive or are they unproductive thoughts? I recently read a book called 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, written by Dan Harris. You may recognize Dan. He's been a part of ABC News for the last 20 years, and he's currently one of the anchors of Nightline. In this book, Dan talks about an event that some of you may even remember watching on live television. Back in 2004, while he was reading the news on Good Morning America, Dan suffered a panic attack on national like news, on the air. And so he started hyperventilating as he tried to read the news. He struggled to put together a complete sentence or a complete thought that made any sense. And he ended up just awkwardly throwing it back to the anchors who were confused and didn't know what was going on. Dan writes that this was the single most humiliating moment of his life by far. And it led him on a journey to get healthy because what he, what he discovered was that he had no uh, control of his thoughts. His brain was just one constant stream of what ifs and worries and fears. And he realized how unproductive those thoughts are. In writing the book, he addresses the skeptic who wonders, but aren't my worries actually good because they help me prepare for the worst case scenario? And I love Dan's answer, so I want to read you a, a couple verses, or a couple verses, a couple sentences from the book. He says, uh, kind of in the voice of the skeptic, but doesn't worrying cause us to come up with plan B, secondary options and backup plans? Well, fair enough. But at some point, you have to stop and ask yourself the question, is this useful? That is a great, great question to ask ourselves as we take our thoughts captive. Is this thought useful? I've been learning to ask this question myself. If your thoughts about the future and its potential are useful because they're helping you prepare and, and kind of get ready for a variety of situations, great. Think those thoughts. Be prepared. But if they stop being useful, then you're just worrying emotionally, feeling anxious about 
what could potentially happen. The what ifs and what if that's and all of those things end up just being a waste of your energy and time and they steal the joy of living in the present. And so God calls us to take our thoughts captive and to remind ourselves, God already knows what I need. And in, in the other alternative that Jesus gives us is found in verse 33. He says, instead of worrying, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and God will give you everything you need. Jesus is inviting us, instead of worrying about our lives and about the future, he's inviting us to focus our minds and our efforts in on pursuing the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, knowing that if we do that, if we get our priorities straight and we pursue God above all else, everything else in our life will fall into its rightful place and God will take care of us. Jesus is inviting us, when we feel weak, to remember this is my time to seek. When you feel weak, remember to seek. A little bit later in his ministry, Jesus gives us more uh, in-depth and a more in-depth analogy of what that looks like. In John chapter 15, he compares our, our uh, kind of seeking first the kingdom of God, he compares it to us as a grapevine. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We have been designed to produce good fruit with our lives. We have been created and called to make an impact, to make a difference in our community. But on our own, we can't do it. On our own, we get weighed down by the worries and anxieties and stresses of life. On our own, we become fixated on ourselves and we become blind to the needs of people around us. We become focused in on our own problems and challenges. We get paralyzed by the truth that we really don't have any control. We get paralyzed by the fact that we, we really are pretty helpless people. But Jesus promises that if we stay attached to him, our lives will produce fruit, and not just a little bit of fruit. He says you'll produce much fruit. Now, how do we produce that fruit? Does he give us a laundry list of things to do? No. He just says, remain in me. Some English translations use the word abide in me. And he wants to drive this home so, so much that he uses the word remain or abide seven times over four verses in this passage. All we are called to do is remain in him and know he will take care of everything else. Your job is not to know the details of your future. Your job is to cling tightly to the one who does and not worry about it. And when you do that, you will experience what the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul called a peace that passes all understanding. That's what we find in exchange when we seek first the kingdom of God. A great example of that is a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio lived in the late 1800s in Chicago with a big family, his wife Anna, their five kids, one son and four daughters. Horatio was a successful lawyer and businessman, but despite their earthly success and, and wealth, they were no strangers to pain and suffering. When their son was just a little boy, he died of pneumonia, 
And while they were still grieving the loss of their son, the great Chicago fire broke out, burning down a large section of the city, including all of their properties and assets, leaving the family with nothing. Knowing that they needed to get away in the aftermath, Horatio booked a vacation for his family to head to England, where his good friend D.L. Moody was preaching revival. A couple days before they were set to leave, Something came up at work, which he was trying to rebuild, so he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead of him, promising that he would follow a week later on a ship to join them. Four days into the journey, while crossing the Atlantic, the ship that Anna and the girls were on collided with another ship, and in less than 12 minutes, it had sunk to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Anna somehow survived, being able to tread water long enough for a lifeboat to fix to pick her up and to pull her out of the water, but all four of their little girls drowned, along with 222 other people. When Anna finally got to shore at England, she telegraphed her husband a a note that said, Saved alone, what do I do? Horatio quickly booked passage on the next available ship to join his grieving wife, and while they were about Four days into the journey, the captain called Horatio into the cabin and told him that they were sailing over the place where the ship went down and where his four little girls had been laid to rest. In that moment, Horatio knelt down and prayed, and then somehow, even while he was overcome with grief and mourning, he penned the words to the now famous hymn, It is well with my soul. Even in the midst of life's most intense pain he was able to experience a peace that passes our ability to understand it he could authentically proclaim and testify it is well with my soul and i want to give you the opportunity to experience that same level of peace this morning Underneath your chairs or underneath the chair in front of you, there's a little piece of white paper and a pen. I want to invite you to reach down and pick it up right now. I'm going to ask Brent to come back up and to play a little bit of music for us. And I want to show you one more passage. Then I'll tell you what I want you to do with the paper. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I'm going to read that again. He says, this is an invitation to you. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Every single week, we pass offering baskets down the aisle, and we talk about that as an opportunity to bring our tithes and our offerings and to hand them over to God. This morning, I want us, in light of this invitation from Jesus, to do the same thing with our heavy burdens. I want to give you some space this morning to write what it is that's, whatever it is that's worrying you, that's stressing you out, that's burdening you. I want to invite you to take pen to paper, to put it in print, and then to fold it up. And we're going to pass the offering baskets down the row. And in light of this invitation from Jesus, I want us to take our burdens and I want to invite you to hand them over to the God of the universe who is in control and who loves you more than you could ever begin to imagine. And as you give him your burdens, I want to invite you to receive that peace that he wants to give you in its place. So take just a minute You can write a lot, you can write a little. It could be just a simple word that 
that, that symbolizes what it is that you're carrying around that you were not meant to carry. So take just a minute to think and to say a simple prayer, God, this burden I'm giving to you. And then I'll come back up and we'll invite the team to receive our burdens this morning. so grateful for the privilege of gathering together in your presence. We're so grateful for the promise of a God to whom we are so valuable. And Lord, we're grateful for the invitation to come before you and to give you the burdens that we carry. And so Lord, right now in this moment, we want to do exactly that. We want to we want to receive your invitation and we want to respond to your invitation. And so, Lord, right now in this moment, we are going to take our burdens and we are going to humbly offer them to you and we're going to ask you to take them off our shoulders. And God, I pray that for everybody who has brought a heavy burden into this room this morning, I pray that they would walk out of here feeling a lighter load. I pray that they would experience that peace that Paul promised, a peace that passes all human understanding. So God, as we give you these, these burdens, we worship you and we humbly thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone who agreed said, amen. All right, team, if you would receive our burdens. quaked before moved by the sound of his voice seas that are shaken and stirred can be calmed and broken for my regard well, through it all through it all my eyes are on you through it all oh through it all it is well through it all oh through it all my eyes are on you and it is well with me Far be it from me to not believe Even when my eyes can't see And this mountain that's in front of me It will be thrown into the midst of the sea 
Oh, through it all, oh, through it all, my eyes are on you. And through it all, oh, through it all, it is well. Oh, through it all, oh, through it all, my eyes are on you. And it is well. Oh, it is well. and trust in Him. The waves and wind, they still know in His name. So let go of my soul and trust in Him. The waves and wind, they still know in His name. Just stand and sing this with me. Let go of my soul and trust in Him. The waves and wind, they still know in His name. So let go of my soul and trust in Him. The waves and wind, they still know. Still know in his name. Oh, it is well with my soul. Oh, it is well. If you want to talk with somebody or pray with somebody, we would love to do that. But as you leave, I want to invite you to leave your burdens here, to take Jesus up on this offer, to hand those worries and concerns over to him, and in its place to receive a peace that passes all understanding, to take captive every single thought, and to remember that there is nothing more valuable to God than you, that he's 
infinitely powerful and he loves you. So you don't have to worry about your life. With that said, I want to invite you to continue camping out in the Sermon on the Mount this week. Dig into it every single day to continue to re-wallpaper your mind with Scripture and the truth of what Jesus said in this great sermon. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Have a great afternoon. Come back for uh, Night to Remember tonight, and uh, we'll see you then as we get to celebrate a great event. Have a great rest of your Sunday.